After Julia gave birth to our first son, I remember saying, I think audibly to her, at, at a minimum I said it in my heart and mind, what do we do with him now? Months of anticipation, hours of labor, we're in a hospital room alone in a foreign city, and we have this little baby now. And I remember us both thinking, what do we do with this infant now? I start there because Christmas ought to leave us asking a similar question. Christmas is over. It's New Year's Eve. Maybe some of you have already taken down your trees and decorations. But I don't think we can just move beyond Christmas so quickly. Christmas ought to leave us asking, just as I asked, what do I do with this, this little infant now? Christmas ought to leave us asking a similar question, I think in two senses. There, there, there's the historical sense and the personal sense. In, in a historical sense, we have millennia, thousands of years of anticipation and preparation. And then, Matthew 1, Luke 2, the Son is born. And the question that God's people should be asking, the question the world should be asking is, what do we do with this Jesus now? But I think we can ask the question in a more personal way as well, can't we? Not just historically Christ has come, but in our, in our yearly rhythms, Christmas is now over. We've spent the last six weeks meditating on, longing for the, the promise of the saving Son. And the question we ought to ask our own hearts as Christmas holiday finishes, as we look to the beginning of the new year, as school resumes this week and work goes back to normal, the question we ought to be asking is, what do we do with this Christ now? I think it's evident to all of us we could answer that question in many ways from many different passages in Scripture. This morning we will answer this question in one way, from one passage, Revelation chapter 5. Christmas is now over. What do we do with Christ? The answer of Revelation 5 is simple. You can summarize it in two words. Worship him. Worship him. If I, if I had to summarize the main message in more than two words, this is how I would summarize the main message that God has for his people in the book of Revelation chapter 5. Here it is. With the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ deserves all worship because he redeemed us by his death and now reigns to consummate God's plan. This is the message that God speaks to his people through Revelation chapter 5. With the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ deserves all worship. Why? Two reasons. Because he redeemed us by his death and now reigns to consummate God's plan. And you can see this message come forth in this passage in two sections. Verses 1 to 5 can really be captured with a question. Who is worthy? Who is worthy? Verses 1 to 5 are putting the spotlight on our need for someone to open this scroll and to finish, to consummate God's saving plan. And then verses 6 to 14 give us the answer. Who is worthy? Verses 1 to 5. Verses 6 to 14 proclaim the Lamb is worthy. So let's begin in verses 1 to 5. Look there with me. 
And I saw in the right hand of the one who is sitting upon the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one was able in heaven, nor upon earth, nor under the earth, to open the scroll or to look inside it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look inside it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion from Judah's tribe, the root of David, has conquered with the result that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. As we come to Revelation 5, I think it's helpful to remember where we are in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1 to 3 is the first vision of this book. Revelation chapter 1 to 3 is giving us a vision of what's happening on the earth between the two comings of Christ. Revelation chapter 1 to 3 went through it this summer. These seven churches, Christ by his spirit present among the seven churches, speaking his word to them, helping us understand what's happening on the earth between the two comings of Christ. The second vision begins in Revelation chapter 4, and it runs at least through chapter 7. If Revelation chapters 1 to 3 looks at what's happening on earth between the first and second comings of Christ, Revelation chapter 4, this second vision beginning in chapter 4, continuing in chapter 5, asks the question, what's happening in heaven between the first and second comings of Christ? You might remember back in July, I preached through Revelation chapter 4. And if you were to read chapter 4, the, the symbol at the heart of chapter 4, the, the spotlight is upon this one God who is constantly, ceaselessly sitting upon his throne. And in Revelation chapter 4, we find that this God, this singular ruler of all things, deserves all worship everywhere because he created all things and because he's reigning in all things to bring about his sovereign plan. So we come to chapter 5. John continues to recount this heavenly vision to us. And if you look at chapter 5, the spotlight still remains upon the sovereign and eternal God who's sitting upon heaven's singular throne. But in verse 1, the spotlight begins to shift just a little bit to the right. The spotlight shifts from the one who is sitting upon the throne to the right hand of the one who is sitting upon the throne, and even more so to an object in his right hand. Look, look at verse 1. There's this scroll or a book. Look at how John describes it in this vision. The scroll is written on the front and on the back to symbolize that it contains its author's full and final plan. There's no there's no other books. It's not a trilogy with three separate books. There's one book with the whole plan, the whole story in it. Scroll or the book isn't just written on both sides. It's sealed with seven seals to communicate not only that it's fully sealed, but also that the one who opens it will reveal all that's written inside. As we interpret Revelation and we come to symbols like this, this is maybe something a little bit too obvious to say, but it's helpful to remember that revelation is symbolic. So if we want to understand the message of this book, we need to understand the symbols and what the symbols mean. 
And so often, if we want to understand the symbols of the book of Revelation, we ought not to look to the newspaper or to recent geopolitical events. We ought to look to the Old Testament. And, and in some sense, this scroll, for those who know the Old Testament, this scroll ought to be like a Coca-Cola sign. I think I've used this illustration before. No matter where I am in the world, China, Kenya, Canada, wherever I am, even just out of my peripheral vision, if I see a Coca-Cola sign, I know. I know what it is. I don't even have to direct my attention. I know what it is. You get, you get the font, the coloring. You know what it is. The same thing should be happening as we see this scroll, this book that's sealed. It's a symbol that comes up again and again in the Old Testament in different ways. We meet this symbol first in Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3. The author Ezekiel says in Ezekiel chapter 2 and 3, describing this scroll, he says, This scroll had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. In Ezekiel, this scroll was the word of the Lord that proclaimed the full scope of coming judgment. Similarly, we meet a sealed book in Isaiah 29. And this sealed book in Isaiah 29 represents God's plan to judge and to save his people. But, but most directly, this symbol comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 12, where the Lord revealed that he would raise the dead on the last day to judge the wicked and to vindicate the righteous. But you might remember in Daniel 12, God reveals this vision, I'm going to raise the dead, I'm going to judge the wicked, I'm going to save the righteous. But then he tells Daniel, shut up the words, seal the book until the time of the end. In other words, God begins to tell Daniel his plan, resurrection's coming, salvation's coming, judgment is coming, but it's not time yet. Keep it shut, keep it sealed. And now this book shows up again in Revelation chapter 5. What does all this Old Testament background mean about this symbol? It means that this scroll, this book, reveals God's plan for the end. To break its seals is not merely to know what God will do in the end, but also to consummate, to finish, to fulfill God's plan. We, we talked about this passage briefly the last Wednesday night, and I'll use the same illustration I did there. Uh, in the American Civil War, uh, when Robert E. Lee decided to invade the North the first time, he issued these special orders outlining the movements of his army for their first invasion into the North. The rebel army broke camp, the Union army came in, and they found two or three cigars wrapped in paper. When they unrolled the paper, what they found is General Robert E. Lee's special plan to his generals outlining all of his movements. When the Union Army took the paper, unrolled it, read the plan, they didn't just read the plan and move on with life. They opened the plan, they read it, and then what did they do? They acted in light of the plan. That, that's what's going on here in Revelation chapter 5. To open the scroll isn't just to read about what's about to happen, it's to bring about God's saving plan. It's to know what God will do and the one who can open it won't only know what God will do, he will be the one who accomplishes what God says he will do. This scroll contains God's full and final prophetic word. When this scroll is opened, God will consummate, finish his plan. He will fulfill all that he has promised. 
The dead will be raised when this scroll is opened. The wicked will be judged. The righteous will be vindicated. The ruins will be restored. Creation will be renewed. The conquerors will inherit. The dragon will be defeated. God's blessed kingdom will come. To open this scroll and to break its seals is to cause the seeds planted in Eden's garden to fully and finally bear fruit. Maybe a simple application before I continue exegeting the passage. Brothers and sisters, we should long for that end. We should yearn for the consummation. The Christian hope never terminates on heaven. At a Christian funeral, the hope that's held out to the people of God should never be his soul is in heaven. And that's it. That is a good thing. To, to depart and to be with Christ spiritually is a good thing. But that's not the end of our hope. As Christians, our hope terminates not in heaven above, but in a new earth when Christ returns and makes all things new, when he consummates God's saving plan. Our hope is, is not disembodied existence in heaven, even though that's better than life here on this cursed earth. Our ultimate hope is resurrection from the dead, life in the new creation, reigning as kings with God in Christ. But in order for that blessed day to come, God has appointed that someone must bring it about. In order for the end to come, someone must fulfill, must consummate God's plan. A saving shepherd, a mighty warrior, a sovereign king must, by his wisdom, his goodness, his strength, take this scroll, break its seals, execute the plan, and shepherd us toward that blessed day. That's what this whole sermon series on promised births has been about. We need a king to be born for us. We need a shepherd to lead us. We need a saving son to come out from outside of what we can offer to come to us and save us. We're not fatalists. We don't believe that God just makes the plan and no matter what, it's going to happen. No, Revelation 5 wonderfully holds forth the tension between God's sovereignty and his use of means. God has decreed the end. And he has required that some king, some shepherd, some warrior come to bring about the end he promised. And so what happens next in this vision makes sense. A great angel goes forth from heaven's throne like a swift herald from a king searching for a champion. Look at verse 2. This mighty angel goes out over all the earth looking for a champion. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And there's silence. Deep, complete silence. Because look at verse 3. Absolutely nobody was able in heaven, nor upon the earth, nor under the earth, to open the scroll, nor to look inside it. No mighty angel above, no great man or woman upon the earth, not even a fearsome beast 
still hidden by the sea that we haven't yet discovered. No mere creature anywhere at any time is able to bring about God's promised end. Isn't this what separates Christianity from every religion of the world? Every religion of the world, in one way or another, looks to the creation to do what it cannot. It looks to the self to save itself. Or it looks to false gods fashioned after the image of creation. But Christianity says no. No mere creature. No mere part of creation is able to bring about God's promised end. No angel can raise the dead. No mere man can produce the promised inheritance. No beast from the depths can restore the ruins. So there's silence in heaven. And does not this silence in verse 3 expose the foolish pride of man? Now, I could give examples of politicians who make promises that, that no, no man can ever fulfill. I could give examples of ideologies that call us to look to our own stewardship of, of the earth or ourselves to, to hold on to eternal life. But rather than look out, wouldn't it be good here to look in? Does this reality not expose our own foolish pride? How often do we live as though restoration depends on us? We anxiously labor without rest. We despair when the need exceeds our capacity. We stop praying for revival and giving ourselves to the ministry of the word and start searching for other means to grow the church. But Isaiah saw a day, did he not? When the eyes of the arrogant shall be humbled, the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone would be exalted. The silence of verse 3 is the sledgehammer, the wrecking ball that demolishes human pride. We are not worthy to open the scroll. We are not able to make all things new. We are not the heroes or the champions of this story. Fathers, you are not the hero or the champion of your family. Mothers, you are not the savior of your children or the champion of your husband. Human being, you're not the, the one that's the center of the story. And I, and I suppose I'll just say, isn't, is it, doesn't that call for a sigh of relief from, from us? The, the longer I live, the, the longer I do ministry, the more I feel in my heart uh, not only praise, I wake up not only saying, thank you, God, that you're God and I'm not, but every day I find myself saying, thank you, Jesus, that you are the hero of the story and not me, because I'm not strong enough, good enough, wise enough, righteous enough to be the hero, the champion, the king of this story. We need a champion. We need a king. We need a savior. The angel goes forth and says, who is worthy? His search turns up no one and nothing in all of creation. And so look at verse 4. John starts weeping uncontrollably. He wept and mourned and wailed as the tears streamed from his eyes and his body shook with sobbing. Why? Because no champion, no consummation. 
No king, no kingdom. No savior, no salvation. With no one to open the scroll, God's end will never be fully revealed. With no one to break the seals, God's end will never be fully consummated. It's why I love the book of Joshua. It's why I love Luke 2. The, the main message of the book of Joshua, after all of the, the battles, all of the fights, all of the inheritances, not one word from all of the good words that God spoke to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. It's the same thing the angel says to Mary. With God, nothing is impossible. Every word from him will be fulfilled. But here we are in Revelation 5. We have all of God's promises from the Old Testament. We have all of his saving plan revealed. And we have no one to bring it about. No man, no angel, no beast. Think about what's at stake here. This isn't theoretical. Symbolic, but it's not removed from our hearts. Let, let me read to you a few of the promises of Scripture, a few of the promises that God says this is what's going to happen in the end. And let me read them again with your understanding that if there's no king, no champion, no hero that turns up, none of these promises will be fulfilled. 2 Corinthians 4.17 These light and momentary afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Isaiah 25.8, And he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. 1 Peter, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is sitting upon the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. There's no champion, no king, no hero, no savior. All of these promises blow away like dust in the wind. That's why John's weeping. He understands what's at stake. We're not good enough, strong enough, wise enough to bring about these promises. The angel searches all creation, says no creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, is good enough, strong enough, wise enough to bring about these promises. If no champion is ever found, justice would never roll. If no savior is ever found, joy would never overtake us. If no king is ever found, the people of God would never inherit. If no mighty warrior is ever found, the dragon and the beastly kingdoms of man would never be subdued. So John goes on weeping here in verse 4 because there's nothing else for him to do. Because no champion has been found. No king has conquered. No savior has saved. There's no one to bring the blessing. And then, 
like a light from the sun piercing the clouds. One of the elders speaks in verse 5. Stop weeping, he commands. Stop your crying. What's wrong with this elder? Is he impatient and merciless? Is he hardened by cynicism? No. Stop weeping, he commands, because he has a gospel to proclaim, good news to announce, glad tidings to bring. Behold, look, he says, the lion from Judah's tribe, who is the promised root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The elder proclaims the promised king has conquered. The promised champion has triumphed. The promised savior has saved. He will bring the blessing. Church, don't you see what this means about our God? We take this for granted so easily. He's not only the God who promises salvation, he also provides the savior to secure salvation. We could live in a world where God merely promises salvation and doesn't provide the Savior. That's not just a given that we deserve. But we don't. We live in a world and we serve a God who not just makes the promise of salvation, but also provides the Savior. Who not only promises the kingdom, but also provides the King. Who not only calls us to conquer, and that call is upon us in the book of Revelation. It's not, oh, you're saved, live however you want. The call in the book of Revelation is you have been brought into Christ and now you must wage holy war against the darkness, against sin, against idolatry, against death. You must conquer. Again and again we hear it in the seven letters. But our God not only calls us to conquer, he provides the champion to lead us with certain victory in the battle. This is the gospel, dear brothers and sisters. The gospel proclaims Christ. The gospel announces not what we must do and not even the hope of a future victory. The gospel proclaims it's done. It's finished. The victory has been won. The champion has conquered. The king has come. This is the gospel that was first promised in the Old Testament. This champion is the lion from Judah's tribe, the root of David. These Old Testament titles reflect what God promised in the Old Testament about his son. He would be Israel's Messiah, the Gentile Savior, the suffering servant and exalted king who would crush the serpent, demolish death, conquer the nations, bring light to the Gentiles, and lead God's people in a greater exodus than Moses and into a greater inheritance than Joshua. Verse 5 is gospel, good news, glad tidings, a joyous message of what God has done in his son to fulfill what the Old Testament promised about his son. What else do we need for joy and hope in the new year? Why isn't the gospel enough for our joy? We could be in verse 4. We could be in this place where there's no king to bring the kingdom, where there's no champion to conquer, where there's no savior to save. But the gospel we believe, brothers and sisters, is a gospel that proclaims no matter what comes in the next year, you can rejoice because you have Christ. 
because of what God has done in him. Who is worthy, the mighty angel asked. Verse 5, the elder proclaims, there is one who is worthy. There is one who is worthy. The promised Messiah has come. And so now at the end of verse 5, the end of this first scene, the spotlight shifts. This whole time the spotlight has been on the sealed scroll in the right hand of the one who is sitting upon the throne. And the spotlight is about to shift from this scroll to heaven's hero and earth's champion as he enters the scene. Look to verses 6 to 14 with me. We'll begin just with verses 6 to 10. And I saw among the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as one who has been slain or slaughtered, possessing seven horns and seven eyes. These eyes are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he has received the scroll from the right hand of the one who is sitting upon the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain or slaughtered. And by your blood, you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests for our God, and they will reign upon the earth. In verse 5, we heard the gospel. We heard the good news about the Christ. Now in verse 6, this champion enters upon the stage, the drama. He enters into the drama of heaven. Now in verse 6, we're about to meet him. But what John sees shocks us. Remember, this is a, a, a vision of symbols. Vision of symbols. And I wonder, dear brothers and sisters... If you were going to write a story with a champion, a hero, a savior in it, what symbol would you choose to represent that hero? When Isaac and I were last in Kenya, we were in the center of Nairobi, came upon a magnificent statue of Jomo Kenyatta. I'd never seen a picture of Jomo Kenyatta, the founding father of Kenya, but I knew it was him. He, he's, he's in this chair, looking wise and regal, and powerful. And of course, Kenya chooses such a symbol to represent their founding father. Think about our own statues of our own historical figures. George Washington. Have a statue of George Washington. Most often he's going to be rearing upon his horse, clothed in his general's uniform, victorious, mighty in battle, or a statue of Abraham Lincoln. It's not a, not a statue of Ford's theater at the moment the bullet entered his head and he was defeated in death. No, our statues of Lincoln have him, like Jomo Kenyatta, in a chair full of wisdom and might. In Revelation 5, we meet the king of kings, the mighty champion, the sovereign savior. And what symbol does God choose to represent his Messiah not a founding father on his chair, not a general on his horse. Look at verse 6. I saw, John says, a lamb. But not just a lamb. A slaughtered lamb. Living, though he has been slain. 
What kind of symbol for a champion is this? Who does heaven's marketing? A, a sign of weakness? An emblem of defeat? But no, look at verse 6. Look at what else John sees. This lamb, standing though he has been slain, has seven horns and seven eyes. In other words, this slaughtered lamb possesses sovereign supremacy. His seven horns represent his almighty power, his absolute authority, his total control of all creation. It's a blinking sign that means this king reigns over everyone, everywhere. The seven eyes represent the seven spirits, which in Revelation isn't, isn't trying to say there's seven different Holy Spirits. It's saying that this king possesses the Holy Spirit in the fullness of his power. This is what Isaiah foresaw in chapter 11 of his book. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This Lamb is that Spirit-filled King. Heaven's champion, our savior, Judah's lion, David's root, represented by the symbol of a slaughtered lamb. And the vision becomes even stranger. Now in verse 7, all of heaven is still and silent as this lamb who was slain approaches heaven's throne. And the climax of the vision comes. This is what we've been waiting for. He receives the scroll from the Father's hand. The end will come. This lamb will bring it about. And in verse 8, like a key turning on a car, heaven's worship suddenly reignites. The four living creatures who represent all creation the 24 elders who represent the church, even bearing our prayers before Almighty God, fell, fall down once more, just as they did in chapter 4, falling down before the one who's sitting upon the throne in chapter 4, now in chapter 5, falling down before the Lamb. And they don't just fall down, they sing. They sing like the Israelites on the Red Sea's shore. They sing like Jehoshaphat and Jerusalem's hosts they sing like David drawn up from the pit. They sing a new and greater song for a new and greater salvation. And their song in verse 9 tells us what this strange vision means. So often in the book of Revelation, the key to understanding the book not only comes from connecting the symbols to the Old Testament, but it comes from simply reading the book and letting the songs and speeches tell you what these strange visions mean. This is a strange vision. One who's sitting upon the throne, sealed book, this, this lamb showing up who's dead but alive, and he's got seven horns on his head and seven eyes on his body. What does all this mean? Worthy, they declare in their song. Worthy, they proclaim. Worthy, they shout. Is this lamb the only one able and deserving to take the scroll from the Father's hand so that he might consummate the promised end? so that he might bring God's kingdom blessing to God's people. Why, we might say. How? He's a lamb. How do prey conquer? 
How do the slaughtered win? Why would the weak inherit? These are natural questions to our hearts, but brothers and sisters, such thinking is dragon-like venom that infects this world with its ideas of power. It's not for the church. It's not for the people of the crucified Christ. We conquer not by the strength of our growth plan. We, we conquer not by the surety of our own wisdom. We conquer not by the exertion of our legs or the faith of our hearts. We conquer in weakness, not strength. We, we conquer through suffering, not power. Just as God promised, this lamb suffered and died, and he is worthy, look at verse 9, because he was slaughtered, not in spite of it. He conquered, look at verse 9, by his blood, not without it. Just as God decreed, this lamb was captured and crucified. Just as God promised, he suffered and died. He came and did the will of his Father, saving God's elect by suffering for our sins. And that is why he is worthy. He's worthy because he's the lamb that was slain, not in spite of it. He is the suffering servant who began the end by his death, so he must be the exalted Lord who finishes the end by his now indestructible life. What we're seeing in this vision is just a symbolic representation of Philippians 2. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, because he was slaughtered, because he suffered, because he died, because he was a slave and a servant when he first came, therefore, God exalted and gave to him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord under the glory of God the Father. And church, do you see in verse 9 what his death accomplished? God's elect, not just from one nation or merely 12 tribes, but God's chosen people scattered among every nation, speaking every tongue, living all over and during every time, in bondage to sin, lost in idolatry, divided by judgment, dominated by darkness and death. But verse 9 tells us, not anymore. The lamb was slaughtered, heaven sings in verse 9. And at the cost of his blood, he ransomed us, such that we are no longer condemned by God, enslaved by sin, dominated by death, deceived by darkness, and divided from one another. What verse 9 means for you, Christian, is that when Satan comes and lies to you, oh, you you're still enslaved to that sin. You can't fight that sin. Or the diagnosis comes. Your body's deteriorating. There's no hope. Despair. Give up. What verse 9 teaches us to say is no. No, those things aren't true of, any, of me anymore. The lamb has come. He has been slain. By his blood, he has freed me from death. He has freed me from sin. He has brought me from judgment to salvation. At the cost of his blood, he ransomed us. And then he did what even Moses could not do. Look at the verse. He made us into one united kingdom. 
that worships God and serves him as priests. From every tribe, speaking every tongue, not contained by the boundaries of geography or the barriers of time, the Lamb, by his suffering, by his blood, has made one people for God. And what's the result of this Lamb who conquered by his cross, who liberated by his death, who ransomed us by his blood? Look at verse 10. We will reign upon the earth. Your future hope is not sitting in the clouds strumming harps. Your future hope is not sitting in a mansion in heaven twiddling your thumbs or playing video games all day because you have nothing else to do. Brothers and sisters, because of what Christ has done, our future hope is that in the new creation, we will rule. We will reign. We will worship. Moses never entered the land. Joshua couldn't secure lasting rest. David's kingdom fell into ruin, but the Lamb, our champion, our hero, our King and Lord, has conquered by his cross. With his victory, he has secured not only his own inheritance, but ours as well. With his victory, he has restored our dominion. And right now, in heaven, from heaven, he is reigning as our exalted Lord at the Father's right hand to bring about that promised end. This is gospel, is it not? Good news of what God has done in His Son to fulfill what He promised about His Son. In Him providing certain salvation, certain salvation for the people of God. Those from every tribe, speaking every tongue, whom the Father freely chose whom the Son graciously saved, whom the Spirit powerfully sealed. Christian, this reality is where assurance comes from. It's not about how strong your faith is. It's about where Christ is. The baby, the infant, has become the resurrected and exalted King. Revelation 5 is a symbolic vision of what happened in heaven after Acts 1-9, when Jesus, having been raised from the dead, ascended to heaven to take up his throne. We live in a new world now, church. The end hasn't come. The dragon still deceives. Idolatry still tempts. Enemies still oppose. Afflictions still come. Griefs still abound. But Revelation 5 proclaims, the new world has already begun. The Savior has saved. The champion has conquered. Our King and Lord now reigns to bring about that blessed end and to bring us, all who trust in Him, to that blessed end. What enemy shall ascend to heaven and threaten His throne? What power shall now take the scroll from His almighty hand? How will death destroy the one who holds its keys? Because Christ now reigns, the end will come. Because Christ possesses the scroll, you can be confident that every single promise in Scripture will be fulfilled. Because Christ has conquered, we will reign. Already now. But how much more so when evil is vanquished, when the wicked are judged, when the dead are raised, and when all things are made new. How do we then respond? 
Another way to ask the question I started with. Christmas is over. Son was born. We're about to go back to normal life. What do we do with Jesus now? One word. Worship. Several different phrases to define that one word. Wholehearted love. Life-giving service. Idolatry-defying loyalty. Unstoppable joy in him. Because the Lamb is worthy to take the scroll, to break its seals, to consummate its promises, He is with the Father, and unlike any mere creature in all creation, worthy of your worship. That's the point of verses 11 to 14. And I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, the sound of many angels, too many to number, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and upon the earth and under the earth and in all the sea saying to him who sits on the throne, God the Father, and to the Lamb, God the Son, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Here it is, heaven's song echoes with the main message of this visionary scene. With the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ deserves all worship because he redeemed us by his death and now reigns to consummate God's plan. Jesus deserves total worship. Not one ounce less than what the Father himself deserves from you, from me, from this church, from all creation. It's why, church, we can never agree with any man or woman, any religion or ideology that refuses to give Jesus the worship he is due. It's why, church, in the next year, we can't afford to compromise. Isn't that the, the real temptation confronted in Revelation? It's not the outright abandonment of Christ. It's compromise. It's joining the true Christ with the idols of our age. It's all the Romans asked the Christians to do was to pinch a little bit of incense to Caesar. Why'd they have to be so stubborn? Couldn't they just, couldn't they, you know, 30 seconds, go in the temple, pinch a little incense to Caesar, cross your fingers, Caesar's Lord. Walk away, and you're done. You have your job. You have peace, you have your family. I hope you understand then the function of Revelation 5. Jesus is worthy of more. That's why they couldn't do it. Brothers and sisters, that's why we, I don't know what will come in the next year. I, I don't know if at your workplace you're going to feel the temptation to compromise with LGBTQ idolatry or lose your job. Or maybe in school when you're talking with your friends, have this friendship or, or, or compromise and you think, can I have both? Just a little bit of compromise? Or, or for our church? True Christ or the cultural Christ? A, a, a church ruled by his word with Christ as king? Or, or a church that just makes little compromises? We'll quiet this command over here. We'll, we'll kind of ignore this doctrine over here. And we'll have peace. And we'll continue. And the numbers will grow. But in the next year, brothers and sisters, we can't afford such compromise because Christ deserves more. That's what it comes down to. That's the point of this vision. This vision is meant to help us see how good, 
how great, how worthy of worship Jesus is. And such a vision is meant to be a, a vaccine that inoculates us against the disease of compromise in this world. Christ deserves total worship with the Father. And so his people, who have been redeemed by his death, and who now look to him to consummate God's plan, can never compromise. Because we love this Jesus too much. Because his spirit has caused us to fear him rather than man. The last thing I'll say is if your heart's not there, and my heart's not always there, that's okay. Pray. <laughs> the promise of the new covenant is that God will so change our wanters, so change our hearts, circumcise them, do the heart surgery, give us the spirit, whatever Old Testament symbol you pull from, that this is what we'll want. And our God delights to make his people into a people who love Jesus and give him the worship, the uncompromising worship he alone deserves. May such love be what God grows among us, Crossroads Fellowship, in 2024. And if such love has been preserved among us at all in the last year, may it cause us to give him thanks. Let's pray.